You're listening to the Living Word Church podcast. To learn more about Living Word Church and our service times, visit us online at livingwordchurch.org. Today's message comes from our executive pastor, Vincent Pavone. I told the first service that after I preached this message, I'm going to check my to-do list. It's accomplished. Because I've been wanting to preach this message for a long time. It's not my bucket list. I don't have a bucket list. Don't advise you have a bucket list. Because if you have a bucket list, you'll be soon to kick the bucket, and you don't want to do that. Unless you're ready to be with Jesus. Uh, I shared this statistic uh, with uh, the men's group months ago when I shared with them, and that is that each month, 1,500 men leave the ministry. They walk away from their post, their position, their churches. For whatever reason, they, they quit. If you think about that, that's 1,500 men a month. That's 18,000 men a year. That's 180,000 in 10 years. And 10 years goes by like this. Because I've been doing this for over four decades. And i got to pause and ask myself the question, why am I not a statistic? Why am I not part of those that have fallen away from service, from the calling of God? And I can only come up with one simple answer, and it's humbly to say the stubborn grace of God. And back then I was sharing on a different subject, but that, that phrase, the stubborn grace of God, just kind of stuck in my in my heart, and I've been thinking and musing and meditating on that amazing truth that God's grace for us is not just, it is complicated, it's precious, and it's, it's wonderful, it's amazing. That's why we sing about amazing grace. So I can only say that it's the stubborn grace of God. And, you know, I want to say this, that stubbornness is often viewed as a negative connotation. It, it, it's a character flaw in some people, so they say. Uh, some people are referred to as, as being pig-headed or thick-headed. doesn't mean their cranium is any thicker than anybody else's or they don't look like a pig. It's, just, it's, it's an expression of a stubborn disposition. You, you heard of the expression, stubborn as a mule. And uh, things can be stubborn as well as people or even animals can be said to be stubborn. When I was a teenager, when I was wiser and I knew more than my Sicilian father, that deserves a laugh, uh, he, used to, he used to refer to me with, with an, his Italian uh, word, which was gabadosto. If you're Italian, you may know what that means. It's somewhere between, between being stubborn as a mule and being pig-headed. So that's what his thoughts about me at certain points in my life were. Uh, I once had a sinus infection, believe it or not, that lasted several years. Uh, had terrible headaches. No amount of antibiotics that I took could possibly deal with that stubborn infection. It was only after I had surgery that I had some relief. You may be here this morning and you, you may have a neighbor who is stubborn. He does certain things that just irritate you or annoy you. Like this one particular individual who, who loves to use his leaf blower uh, at the 
break of dawn, you know, and, and although you kindly spoke to him and gently spoke to him and said, you know, the whole neighborhood would really appreciate it if you just, just use your leaf blower a little later in the morning, say like nine o'clock, and he looks at you like there's something strange about you, something wrong with you, and that's when you realize that his photo is next to the definition of the word cabotosto in the Italian dictionary. But there is a side of stubbornness that, that really is positive when it is faith-based. So let me give you an example of that, and there are several. But, but one example is, is Jacob in the Old Testament. Jacob, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the son of Isaac, grandson of, of uh, Abraham. So he's in a real tight situation facing him, a life and death situation. And he separates himself from the family, and he's, he's out, it's at night, and he's, you know, probably struggling, like, what, what am I going to do? His, his brother is coming to meet him with, I, I believe it was 400 of his armed men. So this was really scary for him. And he meets this stranger, and he begins to wrestle with this stranger. It's really strange, right? But but he begins wrestling with this stranger, and they wrestle all night until the wee hours of the morning. And by the way, this stranger, we happen to believe, is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God, who's called the angel of the Lord. And he meets Jacob, and they're wrestling. And, and so the Lord says to Jacob, let me go because the day's breaking. And Jacob's response is, I'll not let you go, stubbornness, until you bless me. And in that moment, Jacob wins the favor of God, receives a blessing. And in that moment, the Lord changes his name from Jacob, which had the connotation of being a, a conniver, to becoming Israel, for as a prince, you've prevailed with God. The name change shows a character change. For as a prince, you've prevailed. Imagine being able to prevail with God. Imagine wrestling with God over some situation. Say it's, the, it's the, the salvation of loved ones. And you're wrestling with God. And you say to God, God, I'll not let you go until you bless me. I've been in that position many times over the course of my walk with the Lord. So there is a positive aspect of stubbornness when it's based upon faith. Apostle Paul is a great example of stubbornness in a positive way. Paul's preaching in the city of Lystra, and uh, you know Paul would have no problem if he preached the law, but Paul is the, is the champion of grace, and he preaches grace, that we're saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. There's nothing that we have to do other than put our trust in Christ, and he gives us the faith, by the way. Faith is a gift to be able to place our trust in God. So from beginning to end, we, we are dependent upon upon God. And so the Apostle Paul is preaching there in the city of Lystra, the gospel, and the, and the men are just so outraged by this message that they pick up stones and they batter Paul with these stones to the point where they, they just knock him out. They drag his motionless body outside of the city as though he's not even worthy to be in this city. They left him for dead. And the disciples that were with Paul are just kind of standing around Paul. We don't know exactly what their thoughts were. Did, were. Were they in shock? Were they beginning to mourn because of the loss of their leader? 
Did they think he was dead? We really can't tell. But the scripture says suddenly Paul stood straight up in spite of the beating that he received. And he, listen, he had an out at that point. And the out would have been what Jesus said is that when you're persecuted in one city, flee to the next. But that's not Paul. That's not this stubborn guy who loves the message of grace. He goes right back into the city of Lystra. Talk about stubbornness. And because of his relentless ministry and the refusing to give up, I mean, God only knows how many people have come into the kingdom of God because that was only the beginning of Paul's missionary work. And there was more than one missionary work that Paul or trip or journey that was, that was on. And all of the people that have been blessed throughout the centuries because they read the writings of Paul and this message that Paul uniquely revealed was the message of grace. Paul stubbornly proclaimed the gospel and it cost him his life. But look at the benefits. In fact, Paul would be able to say, in spite of all the sufferings that we might experience in this world, uh, he said, I suppose that the sufferings of this age are not worthy to be compared with the joy and the glory and the happiness, and I really don't like that word, but joy that we will have in eternity. Did you know that the Bible mentions grace about 150 times in both Testaments. But interestingly, out of the first 39 books of the Bible we call the Old Testament, 27 in the New, it's only mentioned twice in the, in the Old Testament, although the, the theme of grace certainly is, is, is throughout. But I find it so curious, why is it only mentioned twice? And the first time that it's mentioned, and there's the thing called the law of first mention where something is mentioned or an issue, a topic is mentioned for the first time. It usually has a consistency carrying through the whole Bible. And what we discover about the first use of the word grace is about 1,700 years after the fall, the earth, men living on the earth, had spiraled into a utter spiritual, moral darkness. It says that the earth was filled with violence and every evil imagination entered into the hearts of men. And it actually says that, God, humanly speaking, God sometimes will use language that we can understand and it's hard, I would imagine, for the infinite God to make all of his thoughts very clear to us. But it says that the Lord relented or he regretted that he made man upon the earth. But God had a plan. And that plan involved a man and this thing that I'm terming stubborn grace. Because the first time it's used, it's this. It's in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8, I believe it is. But Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord. In the midst of this spiritual and moral and depravity of darkness, it says, but Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord. The great judgment was about to fall upon planet Earth. You know the story. But Noah finds grace. And Noah and the members of his family survived the flood and begin anew. And the kingdom of God began to, to grow after that point. You know, grace shines brightest when it's darkest. When sin does abound, the grace of God does all the more abound. We sing about amazing grace, right? Amazing grace that saved a wretch like all of us. 
But then it also says in that lyric of the song written by John Newton, it's, he, he says, and it's grace that will safely bring us home. So from beginning to end, we are dependent upon grace. We're saved by grace, but grace also keeps us. It connects us to the Savior who is able to complete the good work that he's begun in each and every one of us. So we're dependent upon grace. There's a lot to know about the grace of God. And most importantly, there's a lot to be appreciative about the grace of God. I think... I, I, I love to listen to preachers who have some depth of maturity in them because I think they come to realize that there go I but for the grace of God. The reason why they're not a statistic is because of God's keeping grace, that God, for whatever reason that God has, he gives more grace, and he gives more grace to the humble. When it comes to the the nature of God. I, I would say that God's grace is stubborn. And here's, here's one of the definitions of stubbornness. It's the steadfast adherence to a purpose or a course of action in spite of reason, arguments, or persuasion. In other words, there's a sticking element here to grace. The steadfast adherence, it's stuck on those whom God pours out his grace. In the course of action, in spite of reason, in spite of arguments and persuasion. If I can say this very respectfully, God is stubborn. He says of himself, I am the Lord, I change not. He is unmovable. The eternal one never changes. And therefore, in that sense, respectfully, again, I say that God is stubborn. And the motivation behind stubborn grace is stubborn love. And I mean, it only makes sense that God's love is relentless. Therefore, his grace is also relentless. And that means that God's steadfast adherence and purpose to save to the uttermost everyone he sets his love upon, in spite of argument, in spite of reason, he will not be persuaded or dissuaded elsewhere. So what does this look like in the life of an individual, right? So you, you're giving me the theory, you're giving me the, the scriptures, but what does it look like in an individual's life? So l let me give you at least one example of where stubborn grace stuck to someone and uh, we see it throughout. So, so here's a snapshot of a guy by the name of Simon. He's a fisherman and he's fishing with his brother Andrew. And actually, at this point in the story, they're cleaning their nets because they had gone out fishing during the night, which was the best time to go fishing, and they caught nothing. So they come back, obviously frustrated, and, and they're cleaning their nets. And Jesus is walking along the shoreline of the Galilee. And in this topography here, uh, the Sea of Galilee would make a great uh, acoustics for, for Jesus to speak to the people from the shoreline. And so Jesus asked Simon, it would be okay to, to speak to the people from uh, your boat. And so Jesus goes in the boat and he's speaking to the people. And, you know, Peter's, you know, go ahead, Rabbi, go ahead, you know, knock yourself out, you know, kind of thing. And uh, Jesus finishes speaking to the people and he dismisses them. And then he says to to Simon and to Andrew, could you guys put out your, your boat a little into deeper water for a catch? 
And at this point, I, I, I just wonder what, uh, I wonder what, what, what Simon is thinking. Like, Rabbi, you don't know anything about fishing. I'm a fisherman. I know about, I know when the right time of day is. This is not the right time of day to go fishing. Nevertheless, maybe you need to be taught that fishermen know fish and you stick to the rabbi stuff you're doing. So they go out and Jesus said, put your nets over the side of the, of the ship. And suddenly, instantaneously, a miracle of miracles happens. The, the nets become filled with fish. If you, you watch the program, The Chosen, they have a great uh, scene where, where, where this takes place with all of these fish just crowd into this net. And the net actually begins to break. And they call James and John, who were their partners in the fishing business, to come over and help them. But this is what happens to this guy, Simon. He sees this miracle. It's undoubtedly a miracle. He drops to his knees, and this is what he says to Jesus. He says, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. You don't know the things that I've done. You don't know how bad I am. Yes, Jesus knows exactly everything about you, Simon. The one wonderful thing about grace is that Grace doesn't run from the sinner. It runs to rescue sinners. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. And because we're all lost, he is seeking those who would be found. Stubborn grace doesn't run from the sinful. It runs to the sinner. Simon would soon discover that the grace of God is not just a theory, that the grace of God is the empowerment to change a person's life from sinner to saint, from, from unrighteous to righteous. That the power of grace, and there's so many aspects of grace, it enables, it, it, it empowers, but it also empowers us to be transformed. That God's ultimate purpose is that we might be conformed to the image of his son. And, and there is transformation that takes place because of the grace of God and the power and work of the Holy Spirit. Stubborn grace refuses to give up on Peter's own self-assessment of himself. If you're here this morning and you think that you know, you're, you're a lost cause, you think that you're the, the worst of sinners, that you're just bad to the bone, could you just erase that from your mind and know that, that he is able to save to the uttermost everyone that comes to God through Christ. You're not a lost cause. And salvation is more than just the forgiveness of sins, as wonderful as that is, but it's about transforming you into the image of Son of God. And, and this is where not only Jesus is going to change Peter's or, or Simon's name to Peter, just as he did to Jacob, which is an expression of a transformation of character, but this is where Jesus now calls Peter and Andrew, James and John to come and follow him to become fishes of men. If you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Christ, you, you, you can't say to me, I know that if I died today that I would, I would be with the Lord, like that young woman that we prayed for today. Then can I make this appeal to you that you would open up your heart and receive Christ because 
He said, anyone that will come into me, I will in no wise cast out. That he is able, that we are saved on the basis of his perfection, not ours, on his accomplishment and performance, not our performance. That's why grace is so amazing. One thing that you need to know is that Jesus is way more stubborn than we could even imagine. He never lets go like the song says. Through the calm and through the storm, he'll never let go of me. And we can use illustrations where, where, where Peter was about to drown, but Jesus laid hold of Peter and Peter was spared a drowning. No, Jesus has a greater grip on you, Peter, than you can ever have on Jesus. The next kind of snapshot that we see of Peter is not a great one because this is a problem that Peter had. And that sometimes when Jesus would say something that he didn't agree with or he didn't like, he would confront Jesus about it. Like, like, like this example that I'm going to share with you now, that Jesus begins to tell the disciples that, that he's going to be mistreated, he's going to suffer at the hands of the Jewish elders, and he's going to be crucified, put to death, but rise again the third day. And Peter didn't like that. So Peter takes Jesus to the side and says, Lord, you got to stop talking this way. We've left everything to follow you. This is not what the Messiah is supposed to do. And Peter doesn't realize that he's speaking with satanic sympathies at this point. And so Jesus addresses Satan at that moment and says, get behind me, Satan. If Jesus would say that to most people, most people would kind of be crushed underneath that rebuke. But the wonderful thing about grace is that it doesn't let go of us when we fail, when we fall flat on our face. And we have fallen flat on our face, and we will yet fall flat on our face, even after we've come to Christ. But that's because he is able to save us and to present us faultless before his presence with exceeding joy. It's, I can't keep myself. You can't keep yourself. That's why grace is so beautiful. Grace is so, so surprising. It, it, it's so amazing to understand the grace of God that's freely given. It doesn't cost us anything, but it costs the Son of God everything. Unfortunately, Peter was a slow learner. And uh, this problem that Peter would have about contradicting the words of Jesus, it, 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 it really kind of led up to his greatest fall, not learning that lesson. The celebration of the Passover gave way to a foreboding darkness that kind of just fell over all the disciples. They went from one moment singing psalms to now just having his heaviness just, just fall upon them. And some of it they didn't even realize was taking place. Once again, Jesus began talking about suffering and being crucified and then rising again the third day. But that last part, rising again the third day, just went right over their head. They didn't connect. They didn't understand what Jesus was doing. And so Jesus says, clearly, one of you tonight will betray me. All of you will forsake me. Now, that's different than denying Jesus because, because it's slightly different anyway but then, then Peter says, everybody else is going to you know, forsake you. Then he throws everybody else under the bus but he, himself and says, I'm ready to die for you. And Jesus said, before the morning comes, you'll deny me three times. 
Now, when you look at what Judas did in betraying Jesus, and you look at what Peter did in denying Jesus with an oath, a curse, both were equally heartbreaking to the Savior. One does not recover, but the other does. Judas is the son of perdition and is also the son in which Jesus prophesied concerning. But Peter makes a comeback. He's reinstated into his public ministry. What we need to understand is that we're so totally dependent upon the Son of God. Sin is a powerful and deadly force. It's the the consequences of Adam's sin. But it's also our sin as well. We just can't blame original sin. We ourselves have fallen short of the glory of God. But I, I love what Tim Keller said, which was the essence of the gospel. He said, the gospel is this. We're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. We are more accepted and loved. Far greater than we ever dared to hope. And that's the centerpiece, really, of the gospel. It's the greatness of Jesus. The guy who wrote Amazing Grace, John Newton, when he was in his last days, went blind, and he was losing some of his memory. And he said, there's two things that I remember very vividly. Number one, that I'm a great sinner. And number two, that Christ is a great Savior. And that you know that Christ is a great Savior He's taken away all of our sins. Here's another definition of stubbornness, and I want to personify this and say that this is a definition of what Jesus is and did. It's characterized by a dogged persistence, refusing to change one's mind or course of action despite pressure to do so, unyielding and resolute. And that perfectly describes Jesus as his face was set to go toward Jerusalem like a flint, the scripture says. In other words, he was adamant about going to Jerusalem, knowing that in Jerusalem all of his sufferings would take place. That was the city in which he would lose or lay down his life. Perfectly describes Jesus as he faced the cross. He was unyielding, resolute, dogged in his determination to pay the ultimate price for sin and for sinners, his life. There's a reason why Jesus said to his disciples, watch with me and pray. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful to the point of death. Jesus literally felt like he was dying. My belief of the Garden of Gethsemane is that Jesus wasn't praying for an out, I don't want to go to the cross, fathers, do something about, no, that's not what Jesus was praying for. I believe that Jesus was under so, such immense pressure, spiritually, physically, well, the scripture tells us that he began to sweat great drops of blood. Listen, I, I've felt pressure where I've broken out of the sweat, but I've never sweat drops of blood. And I don't think anyone here has either, although we've all had pressure. But nothing compared to what Jesus was experiencing. I believe that Jesus was praying that he would not expire right then and there in the garden. That he would have the strength to go to the cross to bear the sins of the world. 
He was unyielding and resolute. No one could change his mind. Not the sympathies of the disciples, neither the, the taunts and the accusations and the jeering of the religious leaders. Nothing could change his mind. His mind was made up. I say, what kind of man is this? Well, he's more than a man. He's the son of God as well as the son of man, excuse me. A couple of months ago, <coughs> excuse me, my wife and I were having, uh, we were having lunch. It was a Saturday afternoon. Uh, even before we finished eating, she began to experience excruciating pain in her abdomen. I mean, I, I've never seen Kathy like that before. She has a high tolerance of pain. I don't. You know, mommy help me if I'm experiencing a splinter, you know. Uh, but, but Kathy actually, and I reminded her of this the other day when we were talking about this, that she actually said in the midst of this horrific pain that she was experiencing, I feel like I'm dying. Call 911. I began to pray and she began to get worse, so I called 911. We found out subsequently through emergency surgery the uh, Sunday evening uh, that she had a tear in her intestine and her, her, her intestines were twisted. The doctor said, you dodged a bullet. And I thought, no, she didn't dodge a bullet. She, she was a recipient of grace. Grace came and, and, and brought about a deliverance from this near-death situation. Not the first time that my wife is, has uh, almost uh, experienced that. I felt absolutely helpless. You know, men are not wired to, be, to, to wear helplessness well. We, we, we're wired to fix things, right? We see a problem, we got to fix it. I couldn't fix it. I couldn't help her. I felt helpless. Can I draw this parallel for you this morning that the God of all grace saw us in our helplessness because of our own self-infliction of pain and sorrow as a result of our sin. And that's when he said, son, go rescue them. And the Son of God came and took our place. The Son of God, who was never weak, never helpless, and never is helpless, came to our rescue. The Son of God stepped in with stubborn love and stubborn grace and displayed his dogged determination to save and rescue us from the power of sin and death and condemnation as well. And what was it that motivated him? He was motivated by love, and his grace is absolutely stubborn. See, we're, we're completely helpless. You know, a lot of people don't like to hear that. They, they, they like to think that, well, there's something they can do to earn or to win the favor of God. No, no we're absolutely helpless. We can't save others. We can't save us, let alone save ourselves. But there's one perfect man united to God who is God in the flesh, who came to rescue us. The payment was his blood. The cost was his life. And he will forever be heaven's champion and will forever be praising and exalting and 
and just loving on the one who gave so much so that we could be set free. So I want to just kind of bring the message down to a close and ask, ask this question, how does this benefit me? How does this, how does this help you sitting, listening to, to the preacher talking? Well, first let me say this before I answer that question. Did you know, if you, if, if you knew that you were about to, to pass into the next world and you had an opportunity to say something to, to loved ones, you probably would want to say the most important thing that you can think of. And Peter knew that his departure was at hand. And Peter's last word, the very last verse of Scripture that Peter shared with people that he loved was this. 2 Peter 3, 18. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in grace. To grow in grace is to deepen your assurance and your confidence in God. And what I believe is to actually be a foretaste of eternity. It's, it's the first fruits of eternity. Understanding God's grace is stubborn means that you don't have to live in fear. You don't have to live in fear of the future. You don't have to live in fear of failure. Because it's not up to you. It's up to him. And he's already accomplished everything that is necessary to bring about our security and our eternal life. Grace means that my life is now hid with Christ in God and that when he appears, I will appear with him in glory and that nothing really can pluck me out of his hand or separate me from the love of God that's in Christ. Neither angels, nor powers, nor principalities, persecution, nothing can separate me from this love. See, that's, that's grace in action. Understanding that grace is stubborn also sets me free from guilt and shame. And you know, th th there's got to be things in your past, there's things in my past that sometimes when the enemy comes in to bring an accusation or, or, or to just, you know, make you feel horrible about yourself because of something you did in your past. And we, we all have that. So, so sometimes there might be something you think about that you did, you, say, oh, you just cringe with, with, with that regret. But what I know about grace is that grace expels that kind of accusing voice and it cannot last as long as you know the stubborn grace of God. Lastly, stubborn grace is the best defense against compromise and sin and the temptation to compromise. Understanding that this is unearned kindness, this is undeserved, ill-deserved that God has lavished upon us when he sent the Spirit of God into our hearts to shed abroad the love of Christ. Nothing is, is designed to motivate us more to live, to serve God wholeheartedly than stubborn grace. If your understanding of grace is, all right, now I can just kind of do whatever it is that I want, then you, you're misunderstanding what grace is. Grace is the empowerment to live righteously. Grace is the ability motivated by the love of God and the grace of God so that you want to be pleasing to God. You, it, it, your priorities have changed. Your desires have changed. There's a struggle that takes place, no doubt, because that which is born of the flesh is flesh. It will always be flesh. But the spirit that is within us becomes stronger and greater. And the more time we put between 
the things that we did wrong and the things that we are now doing right, the greater will be our victory. Your understanding of grace is that God has empowered you now to live for him. Grace is the empowerment to live a godly life by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I say, Holy Spirit, come and illuminate our understanding. Give us a greater revelation of just how amazing grace is. Now, I may have said in this message this morning that Jesus is, is not a way to God. He is the only way to God. And if you need to find your way to God, can, can, can I reiterate what I said a few moments ago, that when Simon and Andrew, Peter and John, uh, James and John, rather, heard Jesus say, come and follow me, would to God that you would hear his voice today say, come and follow me. And I, I would pray that your response would be the same as that of Peter and Andrew. They walked away from their fishing nets to follow Jesus. I want to give you that opportunity in just a moment as we pray. So would you join with me as we pray? Father, I thank you so much for the message about grace. I thank you that Paul championed the message of grace, and it cost him his life. But what he received was far greater than anything that he could have ever imagined, that eye has not seen and ear has not heard the amazing things that, God, you have in store for those who are called and who love you. And I pray today, Holy Spirit, that you would search through, whether it's online or whether it's here in the room today, God, that you would search hearts. And if there's a heart or two that doesn't know you, that, God, you would perform a miracle, that you would open up their heart, just as you, you did a miracle with the creation of fish in a net, Lord, that you would create an opening of a heart to believe and to receive, for with the heart men believe unto salvation, and with the mouth confession is made thereof. And if that falls into something that, I, that I'm hitting on in your heart this morning, would you, would you just kind of pray something like this or say something like this in your heart? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I call on your name, Jesus, to forgive me of my sins. I call on your name, Je I call on you, Jesus, to enter my heart, to be the Lord of my life. I give myself to you to follow you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.